We're in Romans 12, 1 to 8 this morning. Romans 12, 1 to 8. I want you to think about this for just a moment as we, uh, as we get started. Have you ever left a church because you were mad? Anybody ever left a church because they're, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand on this one. Uh, it, it could be the case that at some point in time in your life, you left a church because you're mad. So I just want you to think about that for a moment as we, uh, as we jump into this. Uh, this important, important passage of scripture. So chapters one through 11 of Romans, we have been walking slowly since last year through the book of Romans. And chapters one through 11 is, the, is probably the, the most uh, concise and deep theological treatise on who God is, how he cares for his people, and what salvation is, and how we should should be and live according to it. And again, it's it's got some tough things in there. As we looked uh, from Romans one all the way to Romans eleven, and we had to deal with issues like like our own sin, like the sovereignty of God, like the free will of men and women, like the promises of God and His covenants, and what it takes uh, to 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 have redemption and salvation and. It is Romans chapters 1 through 11 that, that you have to look at. And I think the biggest takeaway from, for me, at least, is, is when, I, when I read Romans 1 through 11, I see this God, the sovereign king of the universe, who said, uh, I love them in their sin while they were still sinners. While they are still sinning, I will send my son, Christ, who died for them. While they were still sinning, he redeemed us. He bought us back from slavery to the house of, in the house of sin and made us free in Christ and gave us a new name and a new identity. And Romans chapters 1 to 11, remember this is a letter that was written to the church at Rome. They're hearing all of this and they are taking in this magnificent doctrine and they are, they are as, as Jewish background believers and Gentile background believers in that house church receiving this letter, they are free and they recognize like they worship the sovereign king of the universe. Caesar hasn't got anything on him, right? And this is, this is huge for them. And, and then when you come to Romans 12, it takes a turn. Like because of who God is, because of how he redeemed you, because of the salvation by which you have received, because of the, the blood of Christ and the sacrifice and the, the atonement and the, and, and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy, because of that, you should live a particular way. And this is where Romans 12 begins to say to, to, to the end of the letter, like, here's how to live practically in light of this beautiful doctrine of salvation laid out in Romans chapter 1 to 11. So would you stand with me? We will read Romans chapter 12, 1 to 8. I, I would title this sermon, An Urgent Appeal to Live It. Uh, not just know about it, but live it. And we'll just read the first eight verses. If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words at the end of the main text reading just to distinguish God's word from my own. So here's what it says. Romans chapter 12, 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in the body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You can be seated. I was thinking about the vivid contrast between the first century church in Rome and the 21st century church in America. And I'm speaking generally now when I, when I talk about the 21st century church in America. I'm really grateful for our church. I'm really thankful for how we are, for who we are, for the things that we stand for and are committed to, for how that comes out in our hands and our feet, and our words and our heart. Um, really grateful. But when, but when I look at the, the church broadly, the 21st century church in America, there's a vivid contrast between what what Paul was laying out for the first century church at Rome and what we're living out in 21st century American church life. So uh, I was thinking about, like, how how would I explain that? And the easiest way I thought to explain it would be, like, do you know why people uh, left the church in the first century and why people leave the church generally in the 21st century? Uh, Like the church, just, uh, I'm going to go to a different church. Now, this is, this is, again, generalization. There's actually good reasons to leave churches from time to time. Uh, but generally, let, let's just talk about this. So in the first century, why did people leave the church at Rome? Number one, martyrdom. Martyrdom. Anybody, anybody like left their church because like, no, you wouldn't be sitting here. Martyrdom. It's like, Later, decades later, they're, they're going to be crucified for their faith out of this church. Uh, martyrdom. A second reason uh, they left in the first century, disfellowshipped over sin. Disfellowshipped over sin. So confronted about sin, they would not budge, and so they were disfellowshipped. They were removed from the church. That's different. We don't practice that much. It's not good for church growth. Bad for business. They were removed. Second second reason. Third, big theological argument over primary issues like uh, Jesus is Lord. No, he's not. No, he's not. You're leaving. Uh, Salvation is... Uh, by the grace of God through faith and not anything else. No, you have to add this or that or the other. No, there's nothing you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, really? I'm leaving. So big theological arguments. So martyrdom, this fellowship because of sin, big theological arguments. 
Do you know why people leave the church in the 21st century generally? This is generalizing, because you all have a story, but generalizing. Number one, programs. I don't like the youth program, or the children's program, or the music program, or the teaching program, or whatever, programs. Like that church over there has a better program. Uh, Second, second reason people leave, Preaching, preaching, it's, uh, it's documented. Like, you can study it. Why do people come to a church initially? Um, preaching, why do, they, why do they stay? It's actually the people that they, they stay for that, that based on what we study. Um, but they, they will leave over the preaching for good reasons and bad reasons, but preaching, right? And then the third reason uh, people leave is preferences, Preferences in the 21st century, all kinds of preferences. I'll just put it in a category. Like, I don't like the coffee. The music isn't really my style. I don't like uh, how they do groups or, you know, whatever. Just preferences. So, I mean, do you see the difference? The vivid contrast is like how people, how people did life and church was just radically different. I think how people leave and why people leave, generally speaking, in the first century and the 21st century shows really a vivid contrast. So Paul gives them in Romans chapter 12, one to eight, this urgent appeal to live it. Romans 12, one and two has a, at its backdrop, the first century sacrificial system. So all these people, whether pagan or Jewish, all these people understand sacrificing animals to the gods or to God. Some of them understand, the pagan ones, understand sacrificing your firstborn to the gods, depending on what their particular pagan rituals were. But they get that first century sacrificial system. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is the very first thing he says after all this salvation talk, after all this redemption talk, after who Christ is, after the sovereign king of the universe and he chose you and all of that, the first thing he says is present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, if I am to present myself, what do I have to do? I'm presenting myself to you today. Um, I had to get up. I had to get dressed, I had to show up, and I had to, to, to be here prepared. I had to choose to do all that, to present myself. So when he says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, this is not something that you hope will happen to you one day by osmosis. You are presenting yourself. You are choosing to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, the contrast here is, most, in fact, all the sacrifices that, that they have seen and participated in, and they've seen a lot, those were dead sacrifices. Those animals were killed, they died, and they were, sacri- they were sacrificed in death. Paul is saying, you present yourself as a living sacrifice, meaning the kind of sacrifice that is walking around the planet, living and breathing, talking and relating 
you are in fact in the culture and in the church and in the community, the living sacrifices of God. You're the ones that that are saying, I will crawl up on the altar. I will present myself to him. You are the ones in the culture. So he says, because of all this, I urge you, it's an urgent appeal, I urge you to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Choose this in life. Don't just be willing to die for Christ. Live for him. Holy and acceptable. Look at at what it says. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So, So what we found in Romans chapter one through 11 is that in Christ we were made holy and acceptable. It's not that my works make me holy and acceptable. I can't do enough good things. I can't pull that off. But he, Christ, made me holy. He wrapped me in holiness. And my belief, my faith in him makes me acceptable in in the eyes of God. So this living sacrifice then, you know, a sacrifice, if we were just to take the Passover sacrifice, like my family, we would have to choose a lamb an unblemished lamb, meaning no marks. It would have to be perfect, one year old. We would take it into our house for three or four days before the sacrifice. We would, we would enjoy this lamb, this one-year-old lamb, this perfect lamb. They're cute. Have you seen them? They're cute. And then we would take it to be sacrificed, right? This is, this is, this is the, the picture is, is like you are now... In the world, this living sacrifice, unblemished because of Christ, you're acceptable, you're an acceptable sacrifice like that unblemished lamb before, before God because of Christ. You need to present yourselves because of all of Romans chapter one through 11, holy and acceptable. Push against sin, live in the holiness. This is your spiritual act of worship. So most people think of their spiritual act of worship as this, what we just did. Well, music and prayer congregationally, and that is, this is part of it. But there are these other days of the week that we are living outside of the gathering of the, the church where we are walking the planet as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. And it is that, that posture and that presentation of our life to God and in the world that is a spiritual act of worship. It is in this kind of living that we daily worship. So what is he asking for? It's not much. He says all you have to do is believe. But then because of that change, because of that transformation, go ahead and be a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Let me just speculate for just a minute. So many people, so many Christians, especially in the 21st century, especially in the United States of America, in the Western Hemisphere, very infatuated with the end times. Maybe we're in it. I hope so. Maybe we're in it. But everybody, not everybody, some people are like, hey, uh, did you hear about, Pastor Brian, because they know I'm into all things Israel. Pastor Brian, did you hear about the Temple Institute? Yeah, I, I did. I heard about the Temple Institute. Uh, you know what they're doing? Yeah, I know what they're doing. They're, they're, they're trying to get all the, the, uh, the archaeological artifacts, the, 
the, the tools for temple sacrifice back together. They're trying to, you know, in, in, in a, with biology, to create this red heifer that will be perfect, this perfect sacrifice. They're trying to make all that happen. And, and people equate in times to like, once they get the red heifer, once they, uh, once they get all these temple artifacts, once they rebuild the temple up there and we can start the sacrificial system again, then it'll be, you'll know he's coming. He's coming back. It seems to me the New Testament says there is a sacrificial system in place currently. Jesus was the first living sacrifice, and now you are living sacrifices. We're not waiting for a red heifer. You're it. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Tim LaHaye got it wrong. All those books. Sold a lot. He made a lot of money. But Paul said, I urge you, therefore, brothers, to be living sacrifices. If you just follow that, that, that thread, nowhere do you see the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. You see that you are being built into a holy temple. You know who the temple is? You are. You are because of Jesus. The cornerstone. You know, it's... Uh, it's a biblical perspective. We are the sacrificial system, and the world needs to see us living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual act of worship. So Paul is saying, I urge you, because of Romans chapter 1 through 11, because of who God is, the sovereign king of the universe, be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He goes on to say in verse 2, do not... Be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I love that he talks about the mind here. Because we like to feel Christianity, and it really all takes place here. It impacts here. And really it all takes, like that belief, that confession is an intellectual, faithful pursuit. And he says, you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, how, how, does, that, how does that happen? Well, don't be conformed to the world. When it says the world, it means this age or the age of evil. It's this, this temporal moment and culture uh, all pushing back against the biblical worldview, the way of living because of Romans chapter one, verse, uh, uh, Romans chapter one through 11. Don't be conformed to the world. The world the Roman church lived in, it was all about this. Listen, all about the worship of Caesar, the worship of other uh, gods besides the one true God. It was all about sport. It was all about shopping. It was all about actors and entertainments. It was all about philosophy. And business, lots of business. Does that sound vaguely familiar? He's saying don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that, that has huge implications because it means that if I'm not gonna be conformed by the pattern of this world and I'm gonna be transformed by the renewal of my mind, then my focus and my pursuit is going to be different every day. And we've forgotten what focus is like because of phones and social media. We can't like focus for three minutes without looking at our phone or 
whatever, but focus is really important. The things that you focus on, that's what you dwell on in your mind, and that's what you become. My mom used to say to me all the time, garbage in, garbage out. She was kind of right. Focus, the things that we focus on and we pursue, this is what brings about the renewal of our mind. So there is a part, there's a transformative part, God's part, Romans chapter one through 11. See all of it. He will transform you. He will make you new. He will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to think a new way. But Paul is saying, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I have just found in practice over time that if I am not very intentional, I will be conformed to the world and my mind will think like the world thinks more than like Jesus thinks. To be transformed, to renew my mind, I have to show up. I have to present myself to him as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is my spiritual act of worship. And I have to do these two things. Hear him and obey him. Hear him and obey him. It's simple. That's the definition of discipleship. One who hears and obeys. That's it. And this is what Paul is saying. Like, you have to listen to him. So what does that mean for you? That means you have to be in the word. Like we don't live in a time where you can just simply morally resist the world and the pattern of this age without sitting in the presence of God every morning. You just won't. Your phone is too big a pull. And you just won't. You have to sit in his presence every morning Present yourself a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Pay attention to your focus and your pursuit. What is your focus? Think about your life, your day. What is your focus? What is your pursuit? Pursue an inward transformation of the mind. Transformation at the deepest level that is infinitely more significant than conformity to the pattern of the age. That's a... It's a tough dance, right? Living in the world but not being of it. It's hard. That's not easy. But Paul is saying, like, you you have to work on this. You have to focus on the things of God. It's a work of the spirit and a work of the person. I, I think in church life sometimes we think, like, some someday, finally, you know, God is going to do this thing in my life where uh, I instantly will be, thinking all things God and never struggling with sin again and totally focused on him and having devotional thoughts every five seconds. I'm telling you, I'm 50. I'm in the word most days of my life. I struggle with sanctification. You have to present yourself. You have to show up. You have to sit sit in his presence. It doesn't matter uh, what the, 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 uh, agony or the agenda or the, the need of the day is you have to first present yourself to him, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And, you know, everything, um, it, 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 it takes place in consistent rhythms. Your, your mind remo- it, it renews in, in, in rhythm. So like you, you, a lot of people like have a New Year's resolution. One day they read you know, the Bible, and they, they pray, and then the January 2nd, they do, 
And then January 3rd is like, ah, <laughs> I'm busy. This is like everything else. Like if you want to get more in shape, I mean, I hate to break it to you, you're going to have to work out every day. You're going to have to eat right every day. It's not like one day, work out one day, you're just sore and can't walk for three days. But you work out every day. Same thing, the renewal of your mind is an everyday pursuit. It's an ongoing rhythm. You build it into your life. Paul is just saying, let me give you this urgent appeal because of Romans chapter one through 11, do everything you can to present yourself a living sacrifice to Jesus every day and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not let the world dictate who you are. Please, because you belong to the sovereign king of the universe. There's a theologian, Leonhardt, he said this quote, I thought it was really good. What madness is it to join in the puppet show which is displayed as on a tottering stage? Christians have been introduced in the life, into the life of eternity, the world to come. What tragedy then if they conform to the perishing world that is left behind? Would we not? Do better over the long haul, eternity, to focus on the things of God, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And I'm telling you, at the simplest form, that is reading your Bible and praying. It's hearing and obeying it. You read it, you hear it, you practice it. You read it, you hear it, you practice it. And I'll also say this, when you practice the things of God, you will find that his way is better. Some people hate you for it, but you will find that his way is better and you will find that he gives you more, more responsibility, more influence because you're practicing life his way. You're, you're demonstrating your faith. You're trusting him. So I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Second thing he says, is that we need to exercise humility as a manner of living. Look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Anybody ever have a pride issue? All of you do. It's, it's the beginning of all sin, pride. At its crux, it's, it's the thing that we struggle with. We want to be our own gods. It's pride. But then in the context of church, Paul begins to say, hey, in the context of this Roman church, uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, if you understand the context, maybe you will uh, you'll understand that a little bit better. So let's say... Let's say that in that church, just like we said before, there are other Gentile or Roman background believers and there are Jewish background believers. The Jewish background believer in that church, he may think of himself really very highly. He was from Jerusalem. He's moved to Rome. He studied the Torah under so-and-so and he's practiced all the laws and the prophets. He may have a tendency to think of himself very highly. He may know a lot of the word. What happens when a guy shows up that was worshiping Zeus like three weeks ago, and now he's come into the church of Rome, confessed Christ. He doesn't know Leviticus 19, 18. 
And this guy's like, he doesn't even know Leviticus 19.18. It's where we get love your neighbor as yourself. That's arrogant. Right? Or the other way around, let's say that this guy that was worshiping Zeus three weeks ago, he, was a, he is a, in the context of society, he is a Roman senator, senatorial class. He walks like this with a fancy robe through the towns. Everybody knows his name. He waves. He doesn't really have to work. He just has to think and speak. And these guys over here, uh, they, maybe they're slaves. Maybe they were, maybe they're a slave class. And, and Paul's saying, hey, look, Mr. Senator, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Because in the house of Jesus, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave. We are all free. So when you get in line for the food right before the Bible study at Life Group in the Roman House Church, the slave can go first. That might not seem like much to you. That was revolutionary in first century Rome. The senator and the slave, the same. The Jew and the Gentile, the same. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, no matter your background, situation, circumstance. Exercise humility as a manner of living. The theologian Denny, he says to himself, every man is, in a sense, the most important person in the world. You think about that for just a minute. Like you th- you, you went, The world revolves around you in, in your mind. And it always needs uh, much grace to see what other people are and to keep a sense of moral proportion. Like there's, we, we have to remember the world doesn't revolve around us and we need to see people for who they are, how God sees them. And Paul's just saying that this as he, as he begins to unpack now, here's what you're gonna do in the context of church. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let each person, man, woman, uh, Jew, Greek, whatever, let them lead the life God has called them to. And then he begins to say, here's what that is. And this is the third thing that he says, is use the gifts God has given you within the church. In verses four to eight of this Romans chapter 12, simply unpack what those gifts are. He uses an illustration. He also used it at Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 15, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized in the one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So understand this, even in this room, we are joined together. Uh, we are here because of Jesus. We are joined together by the Holy Spirit. Many of us would not know each other apart from who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit. We certainly wouldn't collaborate and partner together. And you know, there's a dude sitting here from West Virginia that came to our men's retreat. That wouldn't happen apart from Jesus, right? And so it's really, really important for us to see that each one of us has a part to play in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter our background or circumstances. And by the grace of God, according to this passage of scripture, and many others, uh, we have been given gifts. Verse five, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So the big understanding of the New Testament is in the context of the local church, the body of Christ, every follower of Jesus, gifted and sealed by the Holy Spirit, has been gifted certain gifts, graced certain gifts to use in the body of Christ, to edify the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And he lists seven of them here. These are broader gifts. There are longer lists in the New Testament, but he lists seven of them in this particular, uh, this particular place. First is prophecy. Thus saith the Lord. That's prophecy. It's the, the taking of the word of God and applying it in the context of people's lives, in the church, in the culture. Thus saith the Lord. Some people have a prophetic gift even today. Now, when I say that, biblically grounded, a prophetic gift is not, uh, I, I have this nebulous sort of thought that I think came from God, and so I'm going to give it to you. No. Prophecy is, thus saith the Lord. This is what we know God says from his word, by his spirit, and we apply it into people's lives, Right? This is prophecy. Some of you have that gift. Uh, you have to temper it with um, grace because sometimes that's hard, prophecy. Second, service. This is the uh, diacona. This is the word. It's, it's the same word we get deacons from, but it's not talking about the office of a deacon in the New Testament, only that's part of it. This is, this is the gift of service, and, and many of you have the gift of service. So uh, a lot of times I, I like to say uh, to people here on the upfront, uh, when we talk about gifts, just because you don't have a gift doesn't mean you don't have to do something. Like, oh, I don't have the gift of service, so I don't have the gift of contribution, so <laughs> I don't have the gift of, you know, whatever. <clears throat> but some people are really gifted with service. Like they come alongside and they serve. This particular uh, this particular gift of service is a gift that it could be serving in magnificent ways. It could be serving in mundane ways. In fact, most of the service that goes on in the context of the New Testament church is mundane. It's behind the scenes. It's things happening that you will never know about in a large congregational way, but changes lives behind the scenes each and every day. It's everything from holding the door to a coffee bar to a meeting with somebody one-on-one, privately, just serving, just being there, all in between, life group, kids, students, all that stuff, service, it's magnificent, it's mundane, and, and we are, are gifted to, to do it, and we should use it. Third is teaching. This is the explainer, the applier, the, the person who takes the text, helps people understand that text and apply it for practical uh, living. Exhortation, this is the encourager, uh, encouraging people in the right things, in the right direction. You, you'll know somebody who's gifted this way if you walk alongside them for such a, a moment and you realize that they've encouraged your soul by just kind of being with you. Uh, they, they have pushed you, nudged you toward God in an encouraging way. Some people have that, that gift. Generosity, this is the contributor. Now, everybody, like I said, everybody has a responsibility to give, Everybody's a part to play, but some people are gifted in, in the area of generosity, meaning that they can give 
way above and beyond, and they love to do it. They love to do it. In this particular case, this was for the poor. In, uh, in the book of Romans, it's not like to pay the, the, uh, the house note, you know, the, the loan. It's for, it was for the poor. Uh, six is leadership. This is one who leads overseas. Some people are gifted in that way to make sure the whole is moving in the right direction. And seven, acts of mercy. These are cheerfully, according to the scripture, cheerfully executed uh, acts of mercy. This is, this is the heart of God. If you study the mercy of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will find that it is rampant, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and that it is often offered through mercy. And some of you have the gift of mercy. And that is so important in our culture today. We live in a culture that is a cancel culture. No one has mercy on anyone. For you to offer mercy in the body of Christ, in the culture that we live in, is a beautiful act of, of, uh, of God, right? So these seven, these are broad gifts, but these are the seven that Paul lays out here. He says that we should use the gifts given to us in the context of the church. And I would implore you to understand what your gift is and use it in the context of the body of Christ, whether it be this one or some other one someday when God moves you on to, to that place. You have to use your gifts that he's given you to edify the body. Everything we need is already in the house. Everything. It's just everybody has to do their part. That's what Paul is saying. So I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself a living sacrifice. Show up in the presence of God every day. Give him your head, your heart, your hands, your feet. Let him use you for his glory. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hear him and obey him in a regular, consistent way. Walk it out. Don't just talk about it. Walk it out. Live it. Be humble. Pride is the antithesis of who Jesus is. Be humble. And finally, use the gifts he's given you. This was a grace to you. If you have a gift, and, and you do, if you're a follower of Jesus, having received the Holy Spirit, if you have a gift, use it. Use it. The, this, this body of Christ needs it. There are people here that need you to use your gift, not to run programs to edify their lives, to, 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 to equip them, to help them, to shepherd them. Um, that's Romans 12, 1 to 8. It's really interesting to me, and I'll close with this. It's really interesting to me that Paul was saying, in light of everything God did, here's what you should do. Just crawl up on the altar and die. And uh, I don't care if you're in Rome or not. You're not gonna worship the emperor. You're not gonna worship Zeus. You're not gonna do business like they did because you gotta worship all of them. We're gonna trust God and you're gonna live a living sacrifice. Your, your mind is gonna be renewed. They're gonna talk to you about uh, the son of God, Augustus, and you're gonna say, no, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. You're gonna share a new gospel. You're gonna be a living sacrifice. It's probably gonna get you killed. Until then, be humble. What? Not fight back? Be humble in every way? 
and use the gifts he's given you to edify the body, the church. It's pretty simple. Uh, I often tell people like we sometimes oversell the ease of, of being a disciple of Jesus and saying that all you have to do is believe. And it's true, for salvation, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess that he was raised from the dead, Romans 10, 9 and 10, you will be saved. But that transformation costs you everything. You just will be a different person now. You will think differently. You will use your hands and your feet differently. You will focus differently on the things of God, on the things of the kingdom, for his glory, for his honor. You don't want to be in a tottering, you know, in a puppet show, in a tottering stage that's, that's falling away. You want to be a part of the ever-expanding kingdom of Jesus now and for eternity. And that's your identity. That's who you are because of Romans chapters 1 through 11. So it's an urgent appeal. He's not playing. And this is an urgent appeal to you today as well. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we have uh, often reduced uh, Christianity to the lowest common denominator, just just showing up on Sunday, but you've called us to something more than that, much more than that. And I pray that my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, they, they, they would hear this urgent appeal. When we live in a time that is not unlike first century Rome. In a place that is not unlike first century Rome. Lord, would you help us as followers of Jesus in this time, in this way, in this day, to to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Help us to do our part, to present ourselves to you, to show up. God, give us the the heartbeat, the desire, the discipline to do our part in the renewal of our mind, to focus on the things that you want us to focus on, to hear you and to obey you. Thank you for giving us gifts by your grace. Would you use them? Would you give us uh, the discipline, the desire to show up and use them? to edify the body for the good of the body. We love you. We're so thankful for this word in this part of of the letter to the church at Rome. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.